Would you please turn with me to your study outline and your program, and as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends at uh, Community Baptist Church or Baptist Community Church in Arco, Idaho, and also Purpose Church in Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word. We're doing a series on the final seven words of Jesus on the cross. It's, the series is called Last Words, and today we come to our fourth word, which is the word of abandonment. Now, before we consider what Jesus said on the cross, that's actually going to be at the very end of the message, I want us to go back to the very beginning of the story. And it is the greatest story ever told. It's one story from cover to cover in the Bible. It is one story from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And so let's go through that whole story, and then we're going to be able to understand why Jesus said those particular words on the cross. First of all, we are banished because of our sin. In the very beginning of time, Genesis 3, verse 1, says, Now the serpent, uh, Satan took the form of a certain, was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, and and right, right from the beginning, we see the same lies that Satan tell us today are the same lies he was telling us from the very beginning. Did God really say? Now, the first thing Satan will do is to make you, did God really say that? Does the Bible really mean that? Did God really say that? And he's doing that today with different issues, and he did that back then. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, now here's the way to counter temptation, is to know God's word, to be here on Sunday morning like you are. I mean, anybody that on a drop-dead gorgeous day like today says, I'm going to make it a priority to be in God's house, to worship him, study his word. Okay, you, you get this. We have to have God's word. We've got to read it on a daily basis. We've got to spend time in a life group or a small group studying God's word. Um, we, we've got to uh, hide it in our hearts through memorization. Boy, I love the Awana program. I was just talking today, this past week, with the leader, Laura Coronado, of our Awana ministry, and how all these kids are just learning thousands upon thousands of verses so that when they get tempted, as Eve was, they can say, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die. The next thing Satan does is if he can't convince you that God may not have said it, he'll say, well, God said it, but he's lying. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows. The next thing he'll say is to get you to doubt the goodness of God. God is holding out on you. There's a whole awesome, fun life out there that God's holding out on you on where, where you know better. You and Satan, in consultation with each other, know better how to have a fulfilled life than God knows. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. Now, uh, it, it was fun for a moment. And the Bible says, did you, did you ever know that the Bible teaches that sin is fun? I said, where's that in the Bible? There's a new verse I need to memorize. Here it is. Uh, it's in the old King James Version. I mean, I, it's in all the versions, but I, I love the way it's put in the old-fashioned King James Version. I love this last phrase at the end. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God 
than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Bible says sin is fun, but it's temporary fun. It's fun for a season, and then the consequences come. If you're not having fun when you're sinning, then you're not doing it right, all right? Okay, if you're not doing it right if you're not having fun. The Bible says it is good times for a season, but there are long-term consequences. Genesis 3, verse 23, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. Banished him. Separation, disconnect in our fellowship and our relationship with God. They get banished from the Garden of Eden. But immediately, here's the good news. We get ourselves banished because of our disobedience. But God immediately devises a way to bring back the banished. This is just an obscure verse in 2 Samuel 14, verse 14. Just a dusty part of the Old Testament. Um, It's in the middle of the stories of David, but one of the stories we don't know much about. And in the middle of that, there's there's this gem, this jewel, right in the middle of this Old Testament passage. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. Because of our disobedience to God, we, we've, we're going to die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. Is that an awesome verse? He's saying, oh, you know, we were separated from God because of our disobedience. But that's not what God desires. He, he doesn't desire us to suffer the consequences. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. Now, in all the Old Testament, that's the part of the Bible before uh, Jesus comes, God gives us a foreshadowing picture of what that way will be, and and it's called the scapegoat. Now, let me just do a little bit of a sidebar and a couple of commercials, and then we're going to come back to the main story uh, once again. Um, One of the things uh, I want to talk about or just kind of get on your calendar early on is that one of the top defenders of the Christian faith, I mean, one of the best people in the world today giving answers to our friends that are struggling with the claims of Jesus or the claims of the Bible, uh, questions that we might have. One of the best in the world today is a young man named Sean McDowell. And, and here's the wonderful thing, and she hates me doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, Tina Tong, my assistant, she just negotiated um, a, a deal here. And on Father's Day, on Father's Day, we're going to have Sean McDowell here at all three of our morning services, 8, 39, 45, 11. This is a huge coup. Like I said, he's one of the best in the world today. And you're going to want to circle Father's Day on your calendar, uh, not because that's a day when you get a tie or soap on a rope or something like that. You're going to want to circle that day because that's the day to be here and to bring your friends and your family members that might be skeptical about the Christian faith. Even though it's Father's Day and he speaks, he does a great, he's really good on family issues. We're not going to have him talk on family issues. I want him here for apologetics. I want him here for the defense of the faith because this is what we so desperately need today and that's what he's going to be talking about. And you don't have to wait until Father's Day. Uh, Right now, media, I want to give a little commercial for this. Anybody that's connected with Purpose Church can get connected to Right Now Media, which is kind of like Christian Netflix. 
And even if you're visiting here today, one of the gifts we give you at the Connect Center when you come back and say, hey, uh, this is my first day, um, we, we give you um, my most recent book, and we give you right now media. No, so don't, nobody comes for the book, okay? We have to give it away. Nobody will buy it, you know, so we have to just give it away so it doesn't hurt my feelings. But come for the right now media, okay? Come for the right now media. Because if you just visit here today, everybody in our church can get connected to this a free gift that we're going to give to you of, uh, of this kind of Christian Netflix. And on there is this thing called Quick Answers with Sean McDowell. There's, there's literally, what, about 10,000 things on there. But this is one of the things. And remember I said a few weeks ago uh, that one of the things that's just really causing Christian young adults to lose their faith or for young adults to not even consider the Christian faith are these little two to three minute attack ads on Christianity that you find on social media. And so there'll just be this little attack, hey, what about this? And then they retreat like guerrilla warfare before there's any chance for cross-examination, before there's any chance to go deeper. And, and, and our young adults are losing their faith or they're not considering following Christ because of these kind of attack ads. And so Sean McDowell has come up with counter-attack ads. All right, little two to three minute answers to like a hundred different questions that you're struggling with or that maybe your friends uh, are, are struggling with. And if you go on there, they're just, they're just awesome. These little two to three minute answers uh, to almost any question that you might have. Now, because for the next couple of minutes, we're going to talk about animal sacrifice. I thought it would be fun to see one of these where he answers the question. And this wasn't probably a big deal for me, you know, and my friends growing up in southern Virginia in the 1960s, this was not a big deal. Animal sacrifice, that's just deer hunting, right? I mean, I, what's wrong with that? But I think more and more for young adults today and for millennials, this is one of the things that, that they struggle with. Leviticus 16, there are three animals sacrificed. The first one is talked about in verse 11. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. So the first animal that was sacrificed would be sacrificed for the priest's own sins, for his own sins and those of his family. Then the second animal sacrifice is talked about in verse 15. Verse 15, he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people. So the second animal was for the sins of the people. But then there was a third animal that was not sacrificed. At least it doesn't talk about that in the Bible. There is rabbinic tradition I'm going to talk about in a moment from the Jewish rabbis that that animal may have been sacrificed. But at least within Scripture, this one is not sacrificed, but it's called the scapegoat. And we read about that in verses 20 through 22. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar... He shall bring forward the live goat. In the Hebrew, it's called azazel, the, the goat of removal. Uh, going on to verse 21, he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away, the, the goat of removal, into the wilderness, in the care, now notice that phrase, in the care of someone appointed to the task. Verse 22, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. Now, according to rabbinic, Jewish rabbinical tradition, this is not in the Bible, it's just according to the tradition of the rabbis, when they laid their hands 
on the head of the goat, they would take a scarlet cord, a red cord, and place it on the goat's head as they confessed their sins onto it. The scarlet was symbolic of my guilt. Uh, It should have been my blood that was shed. It should have been my life that was given. It should have been my death that was, was, was taken. Uh, sin symbolically was placed, my sin was symbolically placed on the goat. And then they would take it outside of the city to a place 10 kilometers outside of the city, which is about six miles. And there would be people spaced, other men spaced, every kilometer, about every half a mile, all the way out to this place. Now, according to rabbinic tradition, they would take it 10 kilometers east, southeast, of Jerusalem to a mount they call Mount Azazel after the the mount of the scapegoat. And they would take it there and every kilometer, every half mile, these men would be spaced along the way. When they got to a cliff at this particular mountain, according to rabbinical tradition, they would tie the scarlet cord around a rock and then push the goat off the cliff. Now, according to tradition, not the Bible's tradition, According to rabbinical tradition, they would have this crimson cord that would be wrapped around the rock. They would push the goat off the cliff, and miraculously, when it was pushed off the cliff, the crimson cord would turn white. And according to rabbinical tradition, it would, it would miraculously turn white. So you would be part of this crowd of people in Jerusalem at the festival, and your table would be set at home. And you would be getting ready to feast. You'd be getting ready to party. And they would relay the results as to whether the crimson uh, cord turned white. They would relay relay the information half mile to half mile, all those men that were posted along the way. Until finally, the word would get to the high priest there at the temple. And the big question everybody would have that was there at Jerusalem, has the cord turned white? Did This year, they do this every year, did, did, the, did the cord turn white? Are we forgiven for another year? Has the scarlet cord turned white? And the high priest would get the report. He would walk, walk slowly to the top part of the temple, and he would cry out, you, for another year, have been cleansed. And the crowd would go wild. And they'd celebrate and they'd cheer, and they all go to their homes and have a great feast. In Psalm 103, verse 12, Uh, David writes, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, it's interesting. Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, he said as far as the east is from the west. He didn't say as far as the north is from the south. Now, David didn't realize all we know about the globe and, and our place in the cosmos and that kind of thing. But he was under the leadership of the Holy Spirit who knows all of that. And so it's very interesting. He didn't say as far as the north is from the south. Because, you see, on a globe, we know that you can go south, but eventually there is an end to south where you eventually start going north. Or if you go north, if you go north, there's an end to north where you eventually go south. But as far as east is from the west, there is no end to that. You can go east to west for infinity. It just goes on and on and on. So David, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. He says as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Tell me, is that good news or what? Now, go on to see in Isaiah uh, chapter 1, verse 18. 
Uh, God says, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Remember the scarlet cord that, again, not in the Bible, but according to rabbinical tradition, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Now, each year, they would take the scapegoat into the wilderness. And each year, they'd say, that was weird. What did we do that for? That's, that's really a strange way for God to, to give us this foreshadowing, this, this picture. So they did it for 1,400 years. So fast forward 1,400 years, and now we see the way that was foreshadowing the ultimate way that God was going to devise so that banished people would be banished from his presence no more. John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his heads. What happens when you take a crown of thorns and you press it down on the head? There would be a red ribbon of red blood around the crown of Jesus' head. Just like the crimson cord around the head of the scapegoat. They clothed him in purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in his face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. The, the scapegoat was innocent, and Jesus was innocent. Verse 5, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns with the ribbon of blood around the crown of his head and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. And then verse 6, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Skipping down to verse 15. But they shouted, take him away, take him away. This is the exact language they would have said to the scapegoat. The sins were all on the scapegoat. Now take him away, Azazel, the Hebrew word. Take him away, he's the goat of removal of our sins. Take him away outside the city. Take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them, very similar to the wording of the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, placed him into the care of them in order to be crucified. And just like in Leviticus, it says that the scapegoat under the care of these men would be sent away out of the city in the care of somebody appointed for the task. So these men, are, they take charge of Jesus and they take him outside of Jerusalem where they crucified our scapegoat. And now, after 1,400 years, now, finally, finally, it, it makes sense. Finally, it makes sense. And now we come to our fourth word of Jesus from the cross. Matthew 27, verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. This was a darkness of God's judgment and of his sorrow. 750 years before this happened, the prophet Amos wrote these words. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. 
I will turn your religious festivals. Remember, it was the Passover that was going on. It was a religious festival or celebration in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' death. I will turn that into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. And now we come uh, to that uh, bitter day. Now we come to that word that Jesus said, that fourth word he said on the cross. A thousand years before he said those words, uh, David, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, wrote Psalm 22. And by the way, Psalm 22, you may want to read it before you go to bed tonight. It's the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament. Psalm 22 is the most quoted psalm. But here's what the first two verses say. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Verse 2. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. And here comes the fourth of these last words. Verse 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. In the original Greek, it carries with it the idea of a roaring. He's not, even though he's weak and even though he's suffering, it's not a whimper. It is a loud voice. It is a roar, like the roaring of the Lion of Judah. He roars, Eli, Eli, Lamai, Sabachthani. He goes back to the language of his childhood, which was mainly Aramaic with a mixture of Hebrew. And I've heard that about many people, that if English is your second language, that in a moment of anguish, you will return to your native tongue. When you're absolutely at the end of your, when when you are distraught, you will cry out in the language of your childhood. And Jesus cries out in the language of his childhood, Eli, Eli, Lamai Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Now the other places where he refers to God on the cross, he refers to him as his father. But in this moment, he does not call out to him as his father. He calls out to him as my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why did God forsake him? Why was Jesus utterly abandoned, separated from God, banished from God's presence, experiencing hell in that moment? The meaning of the fourth word is found in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus, in that moment, became all the sins of all humanity for all time. He became our sin. And in that moment, God the Father turns his back on his son. Because he is holy and he cannot, he cannot look on sin in that moment. And Jesus experiencing separation within the Trinity for the first time in eternity cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is because he who had no sin became sin and he did it for us. Paul writes in the letter to the Galatians, a town called, city called Galatia in, in the Roman Empire at that time. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, or sometimes it says a tree, or in this case, it's a cross. 700 years earlier, Isaiah had written in Isaiah 53, verse 6, he said, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But he did it for us. He did it for you. He did it for me because God was devising a way for the banished to no longer be banished from God. God didn't want it to be that way. We brought banishment on ourselves, but God didn't want it to be that way. And so he, he, he immediately set in motion in history a way back to him once again. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.18, But Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He said earlier in chapter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Does anybody want to say amen to that? Now, a couple of final points, and then I want to share a final story, and then we're going to worship, and and then we'll be on our way. God did not ultimately abandon Jesus. He abandoned him for that moment, but he did not abandon him. Because three days later, he was raised to life once again, and that's what we're going to celebrate on Easter Sunday. Uh, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, and Chapter 2, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He did not abandon Jesus, and God will not abandon you. Can you identify with Jesus here this morning, or if you're watching online, or you're listening later on? Do you feel there's an area of your life where you say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As you sit tomorrow, and the drip, drip of chemotherapy goes into your your arm, uh, into your veins, do you say, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Do you stand at the grave of somebody that you love very, very much and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you you cry in the darkness because the love of your life walked out the door on you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you a lonely student away from home and away at school? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you lost a laid off at work and it's been a year of frustration if you haven't been able to find a job and the bills are paying up and you just don't know how you're going to get out of this financial mess? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is there some scar from your past, some wound, something that happened to you in childhood and sometimes it just overwhelms you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you struggle with depression on a daily basis? And in those dark moments of depression, you cry out like Jesus did, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's the good news I want you to hear. God will not abandon you. 
uh, Moses said in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray together. Right now, if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never um, followed this way that he devised for us not to be banished anymore because of the wrongdoing, the things we shouldn't have done that we've done or things we should have done that we didn't do, would you just pray silently along with me as I pray this out loud? Um, Dear God, thank you for providing a way that the banished don't have to be banished anymore. And I believe that way to be Jesus, who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so right now, I accept you, I receive you as my scapegoat. As my scapegoat. The, my sins placed on you and removed from me so that I'll have a way back to God, a way back home. And so, oh God, I'm coming home today. I'm, I'm running home into your arms. Right here, right now, I follow you. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And then for anybody here that just is feeling abandoned, you just, like Jesus, you feel like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I just want to leave you with that word of encouragement. He promised you that even though it feels like it right now, and it felt like it to Jesus on the cross, he will never leave you, nor will he ever forsake you. And I pray for each person here, Lord, that came in with very little hope that somehow they'll hang on to that promise and walk out of here with greater hope than they walked in here. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.